Welcome, everyone. Tonight's our last class uh, for this uh, session, and then we begin again, I think it's June 23rd, and we'll be taking the last third of the Eightfold Path with right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, so the samadhi part, which should be interesting. It's just a six-week class, um, because I'll be going out to IMS to teach in early August. And then we'll have a short three-week, I think it is, class on loving-kindness at the end of August for anybody who wants to do that Buddhist studies class. And while we're talking about Buddhist studies, I'll just mention, um, I don't think it's this Sunday, I think it's the following Sunday, Roger Jackson will be speaking for me on Sunday evening. I'll be on retreat out at IMS, but... Some of you know Roger Jackson is a uh, uh, Buddhist scholar at Carleton College. Um, emphasize his study and research is more in the Tibetan tradition, but just generally a, a scholar of Eastern philosophy and Eastern religions. And uh, I forget now what he's going to give a talk. Maybe you've seen it. Anybody remember the title from the newsletter? Huh? Bob has it? I think maybe the second or third page. <laughs> Spotlights on. Roger Jackson, under the monthly guest dharma. Oh yes, blown out, nibbana and its permutations. So he'll be talking about the Buddhist teachings on nibbana. That's May fourth, Sunday, May fourth. So you just might want to catch that talk if you're uh, available that Sunday evening. So tonight we're going to look at right livelihood, and you probably. Remember, we'll have small groups, so we just have a half an hour to talk together, and then we'll break into small groups. And I thought it'd be interesting for the meditation, you know, the thing about understanding this part of our life that is really about surviving, you know, as a physical being, we're in this world, like I mentioned, where life eats life. This world where there is scarcity. If I eat something, then you're not going to eat it. If I take something to keep me warm, that means nobody else can have that to keep them warm. And I know we could talk about whether there's real scarcity or not, but the fact is there is this very real element of competition, meritocracy, and... Uh, a basic underlying fear of survival. And then not only does it operate on the level of physical survival, but as I mentioned, there's a, a pretty perfect parallel on the level of psychological survival, where my sense of worth, self-worth and my sense of psychological safety is also something that apparently we're competing for. And, uh, you know, in our society and in our social culture, it's like uh, my sense of well-being, my sense of self-worth is very much tied to how I compare to you. Like, I feel relatively good if I feel better than you. If I'm younger than you, more attractive, more intelligent, more wealthy, more these things provide some kind of psychological safety. And if we're at the other half of the equation where we think or it appears to us that we have less than 
less smart, less beautiful, less powerful, less, then we feel less. We feel like uh, we're not surviving well in that, in that psychological sense. So I thought, given that that's what we're looking at tonight, right livelihood, which seems to come with anxiety, just this whole area of psychological and physical safety, that it made sense that in the meditation to put that, all of that activity, that psychological, physical activities to survive, to put it into perspective that we have this capacity, especially if we practice at it, to put it down. And it's, it's pretty amazing, actually. Just like, uh, you know, it's, it's really, in some ways, shocking and, and beautiful. We look out of our window at home. We have, because we feed our birds in ways that the squirrels can eat at will, we have lots of squirrels in our neighborhood and around our house. And so it's really interesting to see them on a sunny day when it has been sunny for a while, how they just uh, really relax and let the sun just soak in. They're like, I don't know if you've seen this with squirrels, or let their legs sprawl out to the sides. And they're sort of let their, I think they must want their belly to be on something that's warm. So like if the sun has been on the top of our fence, there's a wide board, and if it's warmed up, then they're sort of lie on it and bake in the sun. And, you know, often we associate uh, survival and the anxiety anxiety of survival as this constant activity, always looking for something to eat, always looking for danger. So meditation, this part of meditation, sometimes we just refer to it as samatha or concentration side of meditation, it's temporarily putting down all of the activity of survival and realizing that we can survive, (laughs) you know, for a while not being interested in what other people think about us, interested in how we're going to solve very practical issues in our life that lead to income, that lead to safety. We're just not going to address that for a while. And you know, if you're working in a more uh, focused way or a more wholehearted way with attention to the breathing process, mindfulness of breathing, then, of course, you can't pick up any of those other things without distracting your mind, sort of leaving the task, which is absorption, this wholehearted giving of one's attention to the breath, And then later, as the concentration deepens, this wholehearted giving one's attention to the unification of mind itself. So the attention to the breath is the beginning. And then as the unifying uh, quality of the mind or the unification of the mind becomes more dominant, it's actually what the mind attends to. We use the attention to the breath to let go of all the other superficial things the mind might be paying attention to, and then that experience of the mind not doing all those things, it becomes the object. The unified mind becomes the object of attention. And then we get a sense it like radically puts 
survival, both physical and psychological survival, into perspective. Because the mind realizes it can be put down for a while. We're a living being scratching out existence, you know, (laughs) these images that we have, who can put down that concern, fully put that concern down. And then notice the effect, like then when we pick it back up, the concentration ends and we're stretching out our limbs and standing up and realizing there's a body here, a life here, responsibilities, duties. But now the relationship we have to being a being who's trying to survive or trying to survive without causing any more harm than is absolutely necessary, there's a, we touch that, we relate to that with a different tone. In the same way that if we don't do our concentration practice <laughs> and instead, you know, uh, hang around a lot of people or other beings that are very much identified with the scratching out one's existence and the very real sense of competition, you know, watching the birds at the bird feeder and, you know, how the, just interesting to see which ones dominate and consider the other birds away and what their tactics are and what birds don't give in and, you know, these are all metaphors for our own, our, our human activity. How we feel threatened. You know, a new Buddhist meditation teacher moves to town. I notice that. That, that does not escape my attention. I mean, it's the most silly thing in the world, really. But just to be honest, you know, these things get our attention. We feel threatened by things. Somebody gives, somebody else gives a really nice Dharma talk. You know, and it, it feels psychologically and maybe even on a more base level threatening. So the fact that we can put it down is very interesting. It's like, uh, you know, we might think that, um, you know, the question like, why are we here? And not that we would actually answer this intellectually, like I'm here in order to survive. But if we just look at our behaviors, mostly, most of the time, our behaviors in life are mostly just to survive. Or, beyond that, to have nice, nice, pleasant experiences. But both of those strategies, like just to get by, just to not die, you know, to keep from dying, would be a really base like, why am I here? And then maybe a slightly more expanded version of that is to live, to not die, and to have, you know, as many pleasant experiences as possible. But of course, you know, we all know that, well, it will, but it will end. So, it really, it really helps us to rethink this whole world of livelihood, given that it's, it can't be about survival because obviously that doesn't, it doesn't lead to survival. It leads to ending. This life will end. So then it's so, okay, so it's not about survival ultimately. 
So it's about having as many pleasant experiences as possible while we're here. Which actually, I think, is a step in the right direction. So then, because that actually begs the question, well, what is actually pleasant? Being dependent on pleasant experiences is not pleasant. So I think the whole issue of right livelihood, you know, it's this middle way, you know, it's another one of these middle way things because we need to respect the um, needs of the body, like me managing my hip pain by adjusting my posture every 10 minutes now. (laughs) Um, We have to respect the very real needs of the body and the very real needs of the conditioned personality for social recognition and social acceptance. In this middle way where we're not thinking it is some kind of end in itself to keep living, given that I'm going to die anyway. Like, it's clearly, if we think about it, we know it's not about scratching another minute if the consequences are, you know, that we're desperate. It's like that we, we understand that it's you don't win if you have the most years or the most minutes of life. We get that, right? It's more about the quality than the length. So it it really helps us to reflect on, well, what's important? This is from a book by Lewis Richmond. He wrote a book, A Whole Life Work. This is right at the beginning of the book. Of all the kinds of work we do, what is our most important work? What are we doing here in this world anyway, where each of us arrives naked and helpless with no map or compass, like a trainee in some cosmic outward bound program? As we struggle to get our arms around these questions, there are two things we know for certain. Today we are here, and someday, sometime, we will be gone. During our time on this planet, what will we do? What is our responsibility to ourselves, to our family, to our friends, to our community, our nation, to all people, and the innumerable creatures that inhabit the earth and sea and the sky? Do we have responsibility for any of it? Or is it beyond our power? What do we say? How do we act? And I think that question, do we have responsibility besides just surviving or uh, lining up pleasant experience. I think the more important question isn't like, do we have a responsibility beyond that? As much as the question is, uh, what responsibility is skillful? Like, what responsibility, taking up what responsibility makes us happy? Because maybe there, you know, maybe it's a question of skillful means in terms of what we take responsibility for. Just having as many moments of existence as possible no matter what, 
Is that what we're taking responsibility for? Uh, pleasant experience and pleasantness defined by, you know, whatever warmth, full bed, belly, uh, sexual experiences, or spec- sexual release, or whatever, or some other definition of pleasant. So what are we responsible for? Or taking what responsibility brings us alive or liberates the heart? It's interesting, you know, in the history of Buddhism, how um, after the time of the Buddha, evidently, as I understand the history, you know, the a lot of the um, ways that... Uh, people who are into the Buddhist teachings, a lot of the ways that they practiced and kind of organized themselves were in these very scholastic, monastic settings. And I think they they had some independence from the rest of society. They had some of their own wealth, maybe their own property. And they they basically then, they, they could be independent, sort of debating the finer points of the Dharma philosophically and refining the teachings. This is the Abhidhamma, these Buddhist psychology that if you've ever looked at some of it, it's it's quite refined and uh, from some people's points of view, very dry. Um, it's like just uh, refining the vocabulary, defining, deconstructing everything, every possible aspect of the mind's activity. As someone once described it, you know, you can imagine a lot of um, guys, mostly, hold up, you know, with a, with a lot of energy because they're sort of living a simple life. And, you know, with the sort of testosterone uh, attitudes or values, you know, like competing about who can, you know, split the atom, who can split the thought into different, unique, creative ways better than somebody else. And debating that, and um, and so that, after a few centuries, gets pretty, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, but distant from some of these more ordinary things like sex and food and um, survival and... But part of that... Part of what happened is uh, there began a real um, reflection and movement towards compassion and uh, more universal, like these teachings are more universally available. You don't need to have a very refined intellect in order to develop the teachings. You don't need to understand the Abhidhamma, the sort of refined Buddhist psychology you just, it's really about purifying one's motivation. Now, that whole tradition also got very philosophical too over the centuries, as is our nature, I guess, or at least part of our nature, to uh, refine things in ways. I think it's part of, it's like, uh, it's not so different than how we also like to big, build big buildings. You know, we like to build big refined philosophies and big temples, and big weapons, and big houses, and big cars, and so it was sort of similar. But usually, you know, not just in, well, 
probably in all ways, there's, there's going to be this movement of reformation where like people wake up enough to say, this, this doesn't seem to be helpful, this seems to be actually absurd and, and missing the point. So it's like, okay, let's get back to basics. What's really important here? And then we can do that. I mean, we probably have done that, a lot of us, in terms of livelihood and the choices we're making around money, around power, around status, around responsibilities, where we, we've had our own little reformations. Okay, now what's really important here? What really matters? And then generally what happens is that some kind of reformation of motivation. And then as that refinement or that kind of simplification of motivation happens, you know, then we make different choices in terms of possessions and power. And and in a way, it's a bit of a luxury because some people, their situation is so um, animal-like in a, in a Buddhist sense, you know, where they're, the survival, they're, they don't really have much space around basic survival of warmth and enough food, enough warmth, enough food, enough safety, that they can't take a look at the motivation. Can't, they don't really have the space in their existence to cultivate a different motivation. Or to even reflect on the motivation to get by, to make it another day. It's interesting how we um, have this idea, a lot of the time I think it's pretty common, where not working is sort of equated with heaven on earth, you know, like to be independently wealthy or to be retiring when you're still healthy or to be on vacation, have a leave of absence, you know, but not because you're sick or something. But really, and and then the opposite is, of course, having to work is the grind, is like hell on earth having to earn a living, having to go to work on Monday or whatever. feels like, uh, like if only I didn't have to work. I mean, we have this archetype of winning the lottery, which is basically the same thing as like, if only I didn't have to work. So that's sort of an interesting relationship too. So we have this, this setup where... Um, You know, we're, we've got this strong feeling of wanting to survive as many moments of existence or wanting as many pleasant experiences, but we don't want to have to do anything to get it. And it's sort of a setup because, you know, this part of life really comes, arises out of effort. There's a, a sutta for the Buddha's talking um, to some people, and they say to the Buddha, "We are lay people enjoying sensuality, 
living crowded with spouses and children, using fine fabrics and sandalwood, wearing garlands and scents and creams, handling gold and silver. May the Blessed One teach the Dhamma for those like like us, for our happiness and well-being in this life and for our happiness and well-being in lives to come. Now, that's not that different than me wondering, like, how to invest my retirement. You know, asking people, like, what do you think I should do with my savings? Because they're asking the Buddha, like, uh, how do we handle this reality of having apparent needs and wanting to have as many moments of existence and as pleasant, as many pleasant experiences possible? And, you know, the Buddha talks about effort, very particular efforts. He says, these are the four qualities that lead to a layperson's happiness and well-being in this life. What for? Being consummate in initiative, being consummate in vigilance, admirable friendship, and maintaining one's livelihood in tune. And what does it mean to be consummate in initiative? Right. So he's really talking about bringing your full intelligence to these issues. There is a case where a layperson by whatever occupation she makes her living, whether by farming or trading, cattle tending, archery, working for the government or any other craft, is clever, untiring at it, endowed with discrimination in its techniques, enough to arrange and carry carry it out. This is called being consummate in initiative. And what does it mean to be consummate in vigilance? There is a case when a layperson has righteous wealth, righteously gained, coming from his initiative, his striving, his making an effort, gathered by the strength of his arm, earned by his sweat, he manages to protect it through vigilance with the thought, how shall neither kings or the IRS or thieves make off with this property of mine, nor fire burn it, nor water sweep it away, nor hateful heirs make off with it. This is called being consummate in vigilance. And what is meant by admirable friendship? This is the case where a layperson in whatever town or village she may dwell spends time with householders or householders' sons or daughters, young or old, who are advanced in virtue. She talks with them, engages them in discussion, emulates their conviction and those who are consummate in conviction, consummate in virtue, in those who are consummate in virtue, consummate in generosity, in those who are consummate in generosity. So basically, among one's good friends, finding out who's really good in generosity and modeling them, or imitating them rather, who's really good in virtue, imitating them, following their lead, hanging out with wise people. And then the last one, And what does it mean to maintain one's livelihood in tune? And I like this, in tune, because it is this middle way. There is a case where a layperson, knowing the income and outflow of one's wealth, maintains a livelihood in tune. Neither a spendthrift spendthrift, nor a penny pincher, thinking, "Thus thus will my income exceed my outflow, and my outflow will not exceed my income. Just as when a weigher, or I'll skip down, uh, yeah, he, he makes the image of uh, like not being a person who eats 
their own fruit tree. You know, you don't eat that or you don't destroy that which provides your income. But you also don't save it up and not put it back, put the energy of money or wealth back into play by using it appropriately, either for yourself or for others. And then finally in this discourse, the Buddha mentions the four drains on one's wealth. Debauchery in sex, debauchery in drink, debauchery in gambling, and unskillful friendship. So I mention these because this world of uh, just because survival isn't going to work in the end, no matter how competent we are, and even, you know, managing our life in order to have pleasant experiences, that will also come to an end, and we won't be able to be always lining up pleasant experience. Still, application of our intelligence and our willpower in, you know, in these ways makes a difference. So, the Buddha is not saying to be unaware or unconcerned about these pragmatic sides of life, but just to hold it lightly, hold it in perspective. It's like uh, often in the teachings, the Buddha would, you know, give answers or give teachings that were where people were at, and people really wanted to be happy. So he would tell them how to be happy. These teachings on the three kinds of meritorious actions. If you want good things to happen to you, what we might call good luck or good fortune, then practice being a generous person. Practice living with integrity and practice refining your mind because there's no way you can stop good things from flowing your way if you do that. In the long run, good things will flow your way if you cultivate these three things. But you still won't be in control no matter how good. This is the great thing about Buddhist cosmology because we just got another copy of this, by the way, the Pilgrim Kalamita, which is a book sort of built on the suttas. But in this book, I mean, among sort of telling a lot of the stories from the, ta- from the suttas, from the discourses of the Buddha, they kind of, this author creates some stories of people, fictionalizes um, some people at the time of the Buddha. And one of them, you know, is really good and goes to one of the, dies and goes to one of the Deva realms. And in the Deva realms, you know, in terms of Buddhist cosmology, you're there for unthinkable lengths of times and really beautiful uh, states of purity, just beautiful, pure delight. One nice sensual experience after another for unthinkable times. And in the Deva realms, evidently, you know, you're born in full bloom of youth. You don't have to, like, be a sprawling baby for a number of years. And you're, you know, immediately like a radiant teenager. And you stay that way right until the point when you're going to die. You don't have to go through the kind of middle-aged, aging, old-age part. So it's like such a shock when devas die. But they do die, even after eons and eons and eons. So whether this is just a story or whether this relates to some 
subtle aspect of existence that we're not in tune with, who knows? But it's a really good story, just on that level, that uh, all things end. And it, and it just uh, <clears throat> brings us to this place around livelihood. You know, sometimes at Kamgram we call this free giving, free receiving. That uh, what, what really, it's like, <clears throat> what kind of responsibility makes us happy? Are we going to limit our responsibility to just surviving? I've been telling people I've been reading this. I don't know, it's not a trilogy. I think there are five books in the series. And anyway, there's a scene where uh, someone's in prison in a very, very difficult setting. And um, but the mind is so, this person's mind is so fear-based, all they can think of is survival. Even though there's, their existence is about as miserable as a human mind could imagine it to be. This author, you know, the way they describe how it is for this person. And yet that mind, that person's mind as it's described in this book, it's like they just want to survive another day. They just don't want to die. Now, it's so ironic that we can get in that mode about life, that that's the only thing I'm taking responsibility for is not dying. And we can be just as obsessed about the next pleasant experience, like the hungry ghost realm. That's another one of these realms of existence where just the next, thing to eat, the next thing to consume. That's all I care about. I don't care about the consequences, what I have to do to get it, and what that means down the road. I just need the next bite, the next thing. Or, I need your love. I need to be recognized. I need to be liked. I don't care what hoops I have to jump through, how funny I have to be. And we, you know, we, of course, it ends up being counterproductive. All these things end up being counterproductive. So this is what I mean, and this is what I meant earlier about that transformation of motivation. What are we going to take responsibility for? And so like in later schools, really emphasizing living for the benefit of all beings. That may move you or might not move you, but one way or another, we have to Take responsibility for everything because it's the only way to get outside of this self-centered box. Now, there's different ways to take responsibility for everything or to step outside of the self-centered responsibility. There isn't one way, but we have to get there. And I think it has to relate. We have to somehow integrate all these things like showering and earning a living and you know, clipping our toenails and taking care of our kids and mowing the lawn and fixing the house. All these things we have to do to survive, they have to be connected with this more expansive motivation or this more expansive sense of responsibility. And that's really our work. And you can talk about this in the small groups. It's like how in some places of your life you really are that very narrow being and you just... Like maybe when you got sick, some of you are cancer survivors. And maybe when you, you were in the thick of it, it's like, I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what chemicals they need to shoot in me. I want this cancer gone. You know, I just want to live. I want to be able to survive one more day, another year, another. And then just kind of, again, it's not good or bad. It's just knowing where the mind can be sometimes. Or obsessed with sense 
pleasant sense experience or some sort of social recognition or power, like the warring God realm. I just so enjoy throwing power around, the power of knowledge or any kind of power, sexual power, attraction, and that's what I live for. That's what I take, I'm sort of, that's what my life is about. So to talk about these different frequencies, I guess you could say, that you inhabit and how it connects to your, yeah, sort of what you're doing in the world, what you think your life is about. And then maybe times, hopefully times, when you've had a more expanded sense of responsibility, maybe a service orientation where you've given your life away. You know, like in Christian terms, you know, we we accept Jesus into our heart. We put aside our self-centered notions and we give ourselves over to something bigger. I mean, this is an archetype you see everywhere, I think, in human culture. So, that's what I thought would be nice for our last conversation. And you see how it really ties in with sila morality anyway. Just uh, like, given that we are this being with a body that has to eat and we have to get along, how to do this, how to make this synonymous with freedom from self-centered contraction. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.